Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to the latest episode of the Cal Podcast. I'm Tom Falks-Arnold, guest presenter for today and a member of the Army Special Operations Brigade. Today's guest is commander of the Army Special Operations Brigade, Brigadier Rob Hedowick. Brigadier Rob has over two decades of leadership experience, having commissioned into the 1st Battalion, the Black Watch, in 2000. He has a plethora of operational experience, which has included tours of Kosovo, Iraq, Northern Ireland, and multiple tours of Afghanistan. He also has broad experience on staff, most notably as the military assistant to director capability in Army headquarters, and most recently as deputy commander within HQ Standing Joint Command, where his time was dominated by Op Rescript, Defence's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In 2022, he took over the newly created Army Special Operations Brigade to become its second commander. Brigadier, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I know you're a frequent listener, uh, and as we're both guests, um, I thought it'd be rude not to follow the usual established format. So if you're happy, I'll kick off with our first question. What does leadership mean to you? Well, hi, Tom. Um, leadership, well, I think leadership's probably quite a, quite a personal affair. I think in my in my current role, uh, I can boil leadership down to a really relatively simple format, and that it's simply about enabling others to succeed, I think, for me at the moment. And so that leads on to uh, the classic leadership question of, do you feel that leaders are, are born or are they made? Well, I think inevitably there's probably a little bit of both in there, actually. Uh, some people are born with a natural affinity for, for certain things, others for, for different things. but. Leadership is definitely one of those things that I believe is, is like a skill that you can dramatically improve with time and investment and, and how you approach the whole subject because it is a skill. And with any skill, you can get better or your skill can fade with time. So, so I think it's irrelevant to whether you're born with natural leadership skills or whether you pick them up along your career path. One thing I am certain of is that it's a skill set you need to keep working at. Yeah, I think that's, um, that would certainly align with my experience as well would be maybe something we can unpack later uh, as we talk about your your recent roles whether that's something unique to the military uh, or whether that that spreads into the civilian sectors as well um, uh, but to kick off with or to rather to continue with if we move into your formative years um, what were your leadership experiences as you were growing up and um, do you think you were always a leader or, or something that you you grew into uh, formative years were happy, actually. I look back with pretty fond memories of, of the childhood. I think I, I was lucky enough to be given some sort of positions of leadership as a child and growing up. Well, I probably didn't really recognise them as leadership positions as such. Um, was I always a leader? Well, I certainly didn't see myself as a leader. Uh, I was quite enthusiastic about things and threw myself into sporting teams and sort of new opportunities. And that sometimes gave you opportunities to to lead a group, but not necessarily in the sort of positions of leadership or recognised positions of leadership that we perhaps recognise. So I think probably actually just, it was almost by association and by, by virtue of being quite an enthusiastic, sort of throw yourself into things type of child that I probably got a few chances to, to lead teams and, um, and to sort of develop as I, as I grew up. And during that period, were there any, any particular leaders or any formative experiences working within specific teams that that led to you deciding you wanted to join the army or you or you you wanted to to have more of of this sort of growing leadership uh role yeah i think i was i was definitely heavily influenced by sports sport was um and still is uh a huge part of of my life i love sports pretty much all sports and i'm still still fanatically follow, follow pretty much every sport on television which sometimes i think drives my my wife and my daughters up the wall but I think that's probably the thing that uh, inspired me most, being part of a team, going into positions of, you know, or moments of a competitive nature, where as a team you aspire to beat the opposition. And within that team, of course, everyone had to lead at certain times, depending on the sport and the nature of the game. So I think probably that sense of enjoyment of competition about adversarial sort of competition was... Um, was invoked really at an early age through, through a love of sport, if I'm honest. And it, it sounds like the balance amongst the team and the uh, balancing the different strengths across the team is something that you were imbued with at quite a young age. Um, 
I think, and we'll, we'll un- unpack this as we go through, that's something that, that's certainly been clear in the rest of your career in, in trying to balance teams and get the best out of the individual. Um, the parallels between the sporting world and the military world are, are, are relatively well understood or oft explored. Did you see it as a sort of logical uh, stepping off point to joining the army? What, what, what led to you joining the army and subsequently joining the Black Watch? Yeah, sure. It's a good question. I think I realised um, as a sort of late teenager that despite my desperation to have a, a career in sports, I realised I simply wasn't good enough. And I was lucky enough to play up in Newcastle at a time when a certain young lad called Johnny Wilkinson turned up to play. And then when I saw him play and, and then I saw myself play, I realised just quite how bad I was. But I knew I enjoyed activity. I enjoyed being outside. I enjoyed, as I said, the competitive edge of sport. And so when I looked around and thought, what on earth am I going to do? Uh, a great friend of mine who was, well, a great friend of the families who was in the, um, was in the army, said to me, well, why don't you go and look at the army? He wasn't in the Black Watch at the time. He was serving elsewhere. But he, he listed off three or four battalions and regiments off the top of his head and suggested I go and see them. So age 17, I did exactly that. I trotted off to go and look at three or four regiments. They were probably the only three or four regiments I knew about and had heard of at the time. But actually, when I went to see all of them, all were hugely impressive. And I got that sense of collective identity, teamwork, passion for what they did. And probably another big word, which we don't hear quite as much about today, but I think is a really important part of what we do, fun. You know, when I went to visit these organizations, these battalions and regiments as a 17-year-old, I think I was, when I looked at what they were doing, I could see fun. They enjoyed their, they enjoyed their lives. And that really appealed to me. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely clear. And I think... Um... Building on that theme of fun, and I reflect back on my own uh, training and, and leadership journey, which is in the early years, we, we, you know, we have done the same courses, um, and it may be the benefit of hindsight, but I, I enjoyed my time, and that, that's something that certainly stands out for me. Um, and I do think the Army delivers you know, world-class and excellent leadership training that is enjoyable. It's an enjoyable process. It might not seem it at the time. What I'd quite like to do now is, is explore the difference between leadership training, which the Army is very good at, and training leaders, uh, as in the individual. Um, it could be argued that in the Army, uh, training or leader investment and development relies on the interest of the individual uh, and some incentivization. What changes would you make to the way that we invest in our, in our leaders, so the individuals at an early stage? Um, and linked to that what do you think are the consequences of not doing so i think probably first we as an organization can be very critical and that's a of ourselves and that's probably a healthy place to be but i think if i was to be honest when i compare what how seriously the army take leadership uh it's pretty impressive so i speak to friends of mine like we all do who are working in the private sector or doing jobs out with the, the military and they're amazed. They're amazed at how much investment goes into us as a group of people in terms of developing us as leaders. I think the one thing which has been really good in the last few years, driven by the senior leaders in the army, is investment in junior and CEO leadership as well, because the officer cohort do get a lot of investment and are brought up from literally day one to understand the importance of leading well. And that's the privilege afforded amongst the officer cohort. But actually, this is a collective endeavour. And I think the, the investment now, which we're seeing more and more into junior leadership, is, is absolutely the right way to go. I do think that if you start imbuing a sense of importance of, of how much leadership matters in the DNA of a soldier, NCO, and officer at an early age, you instill that professional desire to improve yourself. And that's, the, I think, the critical aspect of it all. Day one of all of our service, irrelevant of rank, is when importance should be played out to someone about how important leadership is. And if you do that, if we continue to do that well, and I think we do do it pretty well, I think we're on a, a pretty good trajectory. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think um, maybe a mark of self-confidence in the organisation is the willingness to, or the ability to recognise that leadership is, is more than just rank. Um, and I know DPERS's initiative uh, to establish the, a, a British Army NCO um, Academy is, is certainly testament to that. Um, and it will be something as we move into your, your current job in the brigade, um, we can discuss the role that NCOs play um, alongside officers. 
if I may, we'll just move to your uh, your sort of uh, the, your tactical experiences of leadership. Um, and as a young infantry officer, um, you saw broad experience, uh, a broad range of experiences, a lot of deployments, um, Kosovo, Iraq, Northern Ireland, uh, Afghanistan. And I just wondered, that's quite a high tempo of operations um, and what you learned from those about your approach to leadership uh, and how you tested and adjusted your approach in those early days. Yeah, sure. I was, I was very lucky. I joined a battalion um, that nurtured and uh, reveled in sort of youngsters joining. So whether you're a young soldier or a young officer, uh, it was a really, really fabulous environment to join because you were cherished. Everyone lent in, recognizing that you were pretty wet behind the ears and had no experience to fall back on. So a relative rank, people looked in and looked after you. And I think from an early age, I was blessed with being surrounded by some pretty extraordinarily talented NCOs and soldiers. And because of that, I could immediately see the ability and the way in which they offered me advice was, was so helpful. I recognized the fact that, that leadership is, is something that doesn't necessarily equate to rank, as you, as you um, rightly alluded to. You know, responsibility and authority is invested in us through rank. But real leadership, actually in a good team, is present in the whole team. I've got a great friend uh, who was highly successful in cricket, and he talked about how he led England to, to being pretty much the best in the world. And he talked about actually making this understanding and this confidence to seize the moment, to understand essentially a team's intent, but to lead irrelevant of their position and team at the right moment, at the right time, to seize the initiative. And that was almost the secret to unlocking the potential in the England cricket team to getting them to, number, to being the world number one. And I think that's a pretty good blueprint, actually. If you've got a small team irrelevant to what you're doing, whether you're in the fashion business, commerce, the military, if you can have a team that understands the direction of travel, what it's trying to achieve, that actually respects expertise across the team irrelevant to a position or rank or profile, but then invest in everyone as the confidence to seize the moment and lead in the moment when they spot that opportunity, well, I think you're onto, onto a pretty good thing. If uh, I'll, I'll pick up on the cricketing theme, if I may, Brigadier, and English cricket has been renowned in, in the last decade or so for having some pretty strong characters uh, that have had to be balanced by, uh, by successive management teams and, and captains. Um, and I'll link that to your, to your time with, um, with the Black Watch. Um, so General Nick Borton describes on a, on a previous Cal podcast how the jocks have got a really healthy challenge culture. Um, and as a rifleman myself, that's something I can, I can definitely um, understand and associate with. But that doesn't make command or leadership easy. Uh, and I just wondered how you dealt with that challenge culture as a young officer and how it's shaped your approach since. Yeah, maybe I've never really seen it as a challenge culture. I think the word challenge itself is, is not always helpful. Um, because to me, it's about, it's about conversation and bringing in, as I said before, expertise where it's appropriate. So I think setting the framework and setting a culture is, is supremely important. And for me, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to be in positions of, of, of being a leader of a team, you know, there, was a, there was a two-way process here. The loyalty I always had to my, my team was when time and space permitted, I would seek wisdom from those who I knew had some in the area. You know, their loyalty back to me was having listened to their advice and expertise. They recognized that eventually the decision would fall down to me to make. Uh, I respected their wisdom and their knowledge and their experience. And inevitably, they, in my early days, certainly, the people I was surrounded by, the NCOs and soldiers, had more experience than I did. So I'd listened to their perspective and then formulate a plan. And when, then when I sold it back to them, they could recognize that you know, they had some of the intellectual property rights of that plan, which I hope retrospectively in um, you'll have to speak to those who I was lucky enough to serve alongside in those early days. But hopefully that resonated with them, that they could see that I had listened, I'd understood. But then I explained why we're going to go left flanking or right flanking or whatever it was and explained the reasons why. So they understood what I was trying to achieve, how I was going to try and achieve it, but also recognized that I'd actually listened to them and not ignored them. So, so I, I think you can manage strong characters. You can bring in and you certainly want diversity of, or cognitive diversity and diversity of thought. And it really helps, I think, having those who may be naturally strong leaders in certain environments, but others who 
who really come to the fore in, in different environments. And so that mix, that mix of a sort of group where you've got a mixture of skills and characters, I think is a really healthy place to be. The secret is actually how you harness the best, best bits of all. So I think being clear on what you're trying to achieve, making sure that they recognize you listen, and making sure that everyone understands the framework in which you're leading and how you lead, I think is a really important aspect of leadership. Now, that, that's really clear and a, and a really useful insight into managing the different uh, individuals within the team. If I could expand that to the, the types of environments you found yourself uh, leading in. So as a junior officer, you range from Kosovo, so peace support operations, Iraq, major combat operations, Northern Ireland as the, the uh, commander of the close observation uh, platoon. Those are very different environments to, to lead and to command within. And I just wondered whether there are any themes that have endured across all of those uh, environments or whether you found that you've tailored your approach to the environment and the task in hand, uh, whether you've had to be more or less consultative, uh, more direct, or, or whether you felt actually a commonality of approach has served you well across all of those. Well, I think context is everything, as you say. Um... And I think where leadership sometimes gets unpicked is just applying a blueprint of leadership into every different context you find yourself. Because you know, I think it's a particularly important in our job that you use your experience as a benchmark and as good contextual understanding of types of conflict. But then you look and reduce the first principles, the context in which you're going into, to make sure you adjust your leadership style appropriately. I think, and I'm sure we'll touch on it in another stage as well. If there's one word I I pull out is that of trust, which I don't think is a new concept. You know, Confucius talked of trust being the most important commodity in a team in the ninth century BC, and I think it's probably never changed. So I don't think that's anything original from me. But but trust is earned and learned as a team through training, through collective endeavour. Because I think when times get really busy and uh, situations get more and more dangerous, often. You have to sort of counter a natural instinct to hold on more tightly and to centralize decision making. Be able to trust your team to make decisions and to um, and to progress against intent. But that that trust is not easy, and sometimes actually it reduces to the point of feeling uncomfortable because you think, "Have I disinvested too much authority?" I mean, the the flip side of that is to make sure you understand exactly what we mean by empowerment and trust. Because you know, a very wise general. In the US Army, said to me once, and he was regaling some of his past experiences that you can delegate authority, you can delegate, uh, you can delegate decision making, you can never delegate responsibility. So, as a leader of organization, I may delegate decision making authority, and absolutely I should, because that's how actually a team can build speed and momentum. But the responsibility of the organization's outputs and whether it succeeds or fails is, is that of the leader. Uh, that actually leads me on uh, quite nicely to, to the next uh, line of inquiry. So if we leap ahead a few years uh, to your time in, in as a commanding officer, um, command is often described as a, as, a, as a lonely business. And I just wonder whether you found that the case uh, and how you dealt with it. Yeah, I don't think I did. I remember um, I wrote a, a wee paper for the Cal uh, on the, when I finished command. Uh, I think command could be lonely. If you make it so. Uh, so I think one is, as a leader, get rid of your ego pretty quickly. Because if you go into that thinking that omniscience is a sort of prerequisite for leadership or command, I think you're, you're going to end up in a sorry place. So I would pick up the phone. I would pick up the phone and I'd speak to those people I knew and I trusted. And I was lucky enough to have sort of several sort of informal mentors from across the army, different ranks and ages, including those younger and junior to I. I would pick up the phone and I'd bounce ideas off. I'd say, how does this sound? I would use my, my sort of team, I'd use my company commanders, and I'd invite them into, into being part of a leadership team, you know, based on those principles that I've already said, that eventually I'll make a decision. But actually, inevitably, where time and space permits, two brains are better than one, and five brains will be better than two. So I think the more you invite leadership to be a collective endeavor, recognizing that eventually you'll hold the, the authority to make the final decision. I think leadership doesn't have to be lonely at all. I think the principle of mentorship, which the army is really big on at the moment, I think that's a really healthy place to be, where you, you draw upon others' experience and knowledge and expertise and 
carry that forward in generations is a really powerful concept. Uh, certainly one I use, um, and I have people who mentor me, uh, those of more senior rank and, and those who are younger but give a completely different perspective from someone a decade younger than me. And I do it for others as well. So I think that that's a, that's a healthy state of affairs, which I hope leads across all ranks and ages and cohorts of, of, of using themselves. There's some really useful you know, lessons to pull out there, the confidence in yourself to ask for, for help and then the humility to, to put that into practice and the, and the confidence in your team built through trust and shared experience, I'm sure, you, to take their advice. Um, I think it's something that, that certainly our, our listeners can take forward. You touched on your reflections on commands um, that you documented in, in a Cal Insight paper. Those were, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, uh, trust, democratize, invoking entre entrepreneurial spirit, spirit, setting the foundation, uh, authoring, and optimism uh, as, the, as the key tenants. Of those, uh, do any of them have primacy from your perspective? Yeah, I think probably trust still remains the, the first one I'd reach to. I think trust is a prerequisite for psychological safe space to generate momentum and speed within a team performance. I think if you're going to really invoke entrepreneurial spirit, which I passionately believe in, you have to have almost built the foundation of trust to really allow people to stretch their minds and to consider things that otherwise may have been off limits. You know, setting the foundation um, refers to my belief that the moral component is the, the foundational. You, know, you build the other components of fighting power on top of the moral component. It's the, you know, there, it is, there may not be a difference, and everyone has a different view here, don't they? They may not. They're all equally important, but I think there's, a, there's an order of march here that the moral component is the benchmark and trust, I think, is a key component of that. I think the other two you mentioned there about um, democratization. Democratization really is a form of empowerment where, and I got this through some of the work I've been doing with the Ford Institute, a brilliant organization who look at notions of responsible leadership. But as I talked about context changing, society changes too, and I think that younger generation of today, you know, when I've engaged with the private sector and other, other industries, I think there's a common theme here that people want what in their professional lives, what they can have in their private lives with a click of a button, which is access to information, to knowledge, to have their say, which is hitherto in the military been associated with rank and position. And I think a modern form of leadership empowers a younger generation or you democratize power in the words I use, where you bring your cohort in so they understand exactly the context in which you're operating. And it goes back to this trust word again, that they understand exactly what the two, three up intent is so they can situate what they're going to do in their own little bit of battle space to deliver against your plan, against your one ups plan, your two ups plan, your three ups plan. And then you start getting to a position where actually every person in that organization is charging with the light bulb fully lit up offering opportunity, seeing threat, so you can defend against threat before it manifests into becoming an issue. You know, that risk is seen as being neutral because it carries as much opportunity as threat. And if you get that sort of, if you get that balance between, I think, those sort of five or six characteristics, then you can really move quickly as an organization. You can instill, I think, contentment because people feel that they're part of a part of a bigger thing. And then I think you start getting the sort of teamwork that we're all chasing and CGS is quite, quite so, well, so rightly emphasized as being a core part of our professional capability. A lot of those, those principles are difficult enough to establish in a, in a military organization. Uh, your previous job was with the Standing Joint Command, and I'll ask you just to explain their role shortly. Um, but they, you were, your time there was dominated by COVID and, and crisis response. Um, I just wonder if you give us some insight into the challenges of, of leadership when working with external partners and a bigger proportion of civilians in the organisation. Sure. So Standing Joint Command is the operational headquarters um, parented by the Army TLB that is responsible for UK operations uh, in mainland UK. So the time you referred to was absolutely dominated by Op Rescript, the military response to the COVID pandemic, but included COP26, G7 conferences, um, helping the Home Office in the aftermath of what pitting, bring in 
between 10 and 15,000 Afghans into the country and a, a number of other sort of smaller operations. I think that perhaps the biggest takeaway I, when I reflect on it is the importance of empathy here. That most of those operations I just talked about were a conglomerate of different government departments and organizations coming together. And although there was a broad end state that we were all trying to achieve set by the cabinet office, inevitably different government departments had shorter term priorities that maybe differed from one another. And I think when you go to and work in a, in a really joint environment that includes civilian agencies, partners, different government departments, etc. When you come to the table understanding and being empathetic to the needs of others, what everyone's trying to get out and what everyone's trying to do to deliver this collective end state is, is critically important. I think that involves, if you're really then going to unpick what being empathetic means, it means also being aware of your own uh, unconscious biases, your own peculiarities about military language. We do talk an extremely odd language that my wife reminds me on a daily basis, makes no sense to most of the world. And so when you, when you work in such an environment, I think it's even more important to reduce and to adapt your leadership style to reflect the, the team you're, you're working with now. So I deliberately sort of always talk some full English, never really used abbreviations. Spent a lot of time actually getting to know and listening to other organizations to understand exactly how they worked, what they were trying to engineer and how they could contribute. I think I welcomed the diversity in standing joint command, which was probably had a more equitable mix of male, female, civilian, military, regular reserve, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that was a really healthy headquarters because, you know, brilliantly led by Commander SJC and the Deputy Commander SJC at the time. There was no testosterone. People were empathetic to each other's needs. There were personal pressures that people were dealing with at the same time. So empathy was a huge part of that sort of time of my life in that organization, in the context where the United Kingdom were at that time. And that's probably, we always talk about empathy. And I think I, but I look back now and realize I learned a huge amount of my time at SJC about really the sort of the nuances of what being empathetic really means. I'll move on slightly. And again, another time leap to your, to your current job, if I may. Um, so you're currently in command of the Army Special Operations Brigade a new entity uh, that is uh, developing quickly. For those visit listeners that who aren't well-versed on the, on the brigade itself uh, and the ranger units that, that you command, would you mind giving us an overview of the brigade and the rangers, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Army Special Operations Brigade consists of four ranger battalions, the Joint Counter-Terrorist Training and Advisory Team, 255 Signal Squadron and 62 MI Company. And we're just in the process of standing up a ranger reserve company group as well. So all in all, about sort of 1,400 people. And goodness, it's, it's a hugely exciting place to be. I absolutely love it. I, very easy to hop out of bed in the morning and race into work because I genuinely believe that what the brigade are sort of becoming, which is, you know, the vision is to become the, sort of the Army's premier sort of sophisticated deliverers of military assistance, is a really powerful concept. And I think one need only look across to the the horrific circumstances in Eastern Europe now to understand how we may be employed in the future and to and the value we may be able to offer the army. Um, you touched on military assistance there, and I think most of our listeners will recognise that military assistance itself is perhaps not something new for the British Army, um, but perhaps the way that, that you're achieving that within the brigade is new. Um, why is it so important in the contemporary uh, and expected to be important in the future operating environment? Yeah, it is. I think it is important. So, I mean, the, I mean, our purpose is to is to operate across a complex or across complex and high threat environments to deliver operational insights and effects to counter violent extremist organisations and hostile state actors. And I think, you know, the the government has been clear in its ambition to have a global perspective. And I think through the deployment of small teams alongside sophisticated partners into parts of the world where we may not have as a nation great influence or as a military great influence at this stage. You know, we can offer a platform for defence, for the army, for government to provide capabilities to support partners against mutual adversaries that otherwise would be hard to do. 
I think the the skill sets you require to do that reflect some of those we've already talked about, actually. Uh, and that's sort of where we're focused. But you know, the real sophistication of our military assistance is what we're driving towards. That we can provide partner forces, as I said, to assist them in a mutual in sort of combating a mutual adversary, access to capabilities and expertise that otherwise they wouldn't have. And it plays this this sort of thought process that you can you can maximize the ability of a relatively small army. And we have it's a fact we have shrunk considerably over over the last decade. You can sort of double the effect by leveraging and working alongside similarly minded partners with similar enemies, pulling together the joint capabilities and then delivering it in concert together to maximize your impact against an adversary. And that's a I think that's a really powerful concept. So I'm I'm hundred percent bought in. As I said, we are working tirelessly now to to drive towards that vision and, and pleased to say actually so far it's going really well. The cynic might uh, accuse the army of finding a cheaper way of conducting its business overseas uh, and the brigade uh, being one of the ways of realising that. How would you counter that? I think inevitably you want to find a few people who are always cynical about new ideas, but that doesn't mean they're right. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the world is a smaller place. Multilateralism and multinational organisations such as NATO, which have always been the cornerstone of our defence, we've said that endless security reviews i think we can see you know just again looking eastwards the power of when 30 or 32 nations come together with a collective identity and a collective output so um people may say it's for the reason that we're getting smaller i'd say actually it's more reflective of a way of doing business now that makes far more sense that recognizes that the problems the united kingdom face and our military face are often the same as many other countries and you're far more effective if you work together rather than in isolation. So I don't think it's necessarily a result of getting smaller. I have no doubt that we have pursued something akin to the Special Operations Brigade, irrelevant of our size, even if we're twice the size. It's a sensible way of doing business, which actually pretty other, pretty much other, every other nation we work with is also adopting as well. It's clear that in, in what you're building and, and the, the sort of capability journey you're on, demands uh, a certain type of individual um most of our listeners will be aware that the for the, to, to join the rangers or join the brigade there is an assessment process uh, and individuals are are selected through that process what attributes and behaviors are you specifically looking for yeah i think the we start with our name because the army special operations brigade perhaps for those less familiar with what we do implies something that we're not because i don't see us as being Special. Special is not a word that we use talking about ourselves in the brigade. I think maybe what we, we do offer is a point of difference, and that is the word I would major on. You know, we're part of the field army, same as any other organization, but what we offer is perhaps unique to the field army in this notion of sophisticated military assistance. So the characteristics I really want and that the assessment looks at are, are some of the ones that perhaps people wouldn't associate with the organization. So it's about judgment judgment under pressure. It's about emotional intelligence. It is about entrepreneurial spirit and having an eye for opportunity. It's about technical acumen because sophisticated military assistance isn't necessarily just delivering S-triple-Ts which help a partner force shoot straighter. Most of our partner forces are extremely competent and can shoot straight without our help. But what they may ask for us is access to some of the specific expertise or skill sets that our nation have that others don't. So it's those sort of skills I'm really after, um, rather than just some sort of physical beast who can sprint up a hill very quickly and sprint down a hill and, and, and pretend to kick a door in really well. I mean, that, there are other organizations in defense who do that brilliantly, and we are not them, and we don't seek to mimic them. We're our own organization with our own identity, our own capability, and one that we can be rightly proud of. Because so I think it, it fills a market that is so so contemporary and so prevalent at the moment that neither the rest of the field army are optimized to do because they have a really important role to do in a more conventional warfighting role. I think we feel the market about how you, you come together in small organizations to have a disproportionate effect on an anniversary in a way that perhaps is unconventional rather than conventional. I think most of our listeners will see the appeal in that. Um... If we could just focus on the the opportunity and the challenge for your junior leaders, 
Um, what is different about leadership in the Rangers and, and what makes it appealing? What should make it appealing? I think the way we operate is pretty exciting, actually, because I think the whole, the whole setup is that we are globally deployed persistently uh, in concert with our partners. So it's not me sort of making broad, I'm not telling small teams deployed in the other half of the world what to do. They are absolutely leading brigades. So junior NCOs have the authority and the power to seek opportunity, working with partners, to work out actually how an operation may, may endure, may progress, may branch and sequel actually to get to the, to get to the final sort of objective through a different means. And they are reporting back and they are guiding myself as the brigade commander. They're guiding division and they're guiding, to a certain degree, um, you know, those in positions of authority and seniority across the army as to where they may invest their, their precious resource. So it's almost the inverse, I think, to how historically the army perhaps has once operated, where power and planning and authority to, to make decisions is invested in high headquarters normally to the rear of the front line. I mean, here we are, we're doing the opposite. Junior NCOs are trained and empowered and sort of celebrated where expertise is at everything and rank less so, so that we listen to the experts we've got now plugged in across the globe and trust their judgment that they are saying that this is the partner force to engage in because this is the route of march to get after this problem set. You know, I listen to that and that's essentially the sort of the information that I then pull back to advise a GOC and, um, and to seek to progress those operations. So I think there genuinely is opportunity. I mean, we are now, we've deployed 375 activities, I think, in over 60 countries in the last 11 months. So people definitely get their operational fix. And the empowerment, or democratization, as I call it, is absolutely alive and well. And that's the, that's the premise of the whole, whole organization. You know, the range of CEOs are commanding officers of their own units, but they're also directors of operations for the regions that they look after. And they manage their teams accordingly, persistently deployed, spread out, working, embedded, working very closely with partner forces, optimized against particular problem sets. And theirs are the word that I trust and really guides how the brigade operate. Uh, very clear. Um, I thought we might continue along that theme and, and zoom in slightly for some uh, some real life you know, examples of, of what your junior leaders are up to. Um, and the, the examples I pull out from, from my time in subunit commanders, uh, I had three captains in three different countries at one point, one of whom with a newly promoted colour sergeant was closing down a, uh, a UK patrol base within a wider coalition base, one of whom was working with industry, doing some capability development work, another who was plugged into a, a NATO uh, soft headquarters. The diversity and challenge is something that, that that I couldn't uh, have anticipated when I was a captain and the opportunity was phenomenal. Um, are there any particular examples that you would, you would want to emphasize that, that particularly represent uh, the, the sort of theory that we've chatted through so far? I'll probably talk more broadly rather than given, uh, give specific examples because it's probably not the right time or place to talk in detail about some of the operations. But we're heavily invested with many native allies in Eastern Europe, as you might expect. But actually, when you look at how hostile state um, actor activity plays out and the prevalence of violent extremist organizations across the globe, you know, the, our activity isn't solely on the European continent whatsoever. You know, we're pushing down into PACOM region to get after particular problem sets there. We've got um, numerous teams deployed across the breadth of Africa, uh, countering and helping Partner forces, partner forces counter violent extremist organizations that not only challenge their, their sort of security, but also actually indirectly challenge ours. We're working extremely closely with our US counterparts uh, and our whole network actually of partner forces are deepening and broadening by the day. So if I spoke to a team commander today, they would probably tell you of experience in at least two or three continents with tier one um, special operation forces partners from across different nations of looking at how you operate and constrain adversaries below the threshold of war, but also how we operate and support the British Army and NATO above the threshold of war in a war fighting scenario. 
they will talk of their responsibility to plan the operation, to deploy, to command, to sustain, to redeploy, to manage the interests of multi-government department activity in that country, bring it all into a sort of comprehensive approach that actually progresses an operation, understanding the needs of others, but brings to bear expertise that is not solely within perhaps the brigade or even the army, because we do work closely with partners across government as well. So it is a cerebral challenge. It is certainly there is also uh, a need for sort of physical endurance and resilience. And then it's all about leadership and teamwork. And that's why those, the assessment process seeks to really, and we do seek to train in rather than train out. It absolutely is, is, a, is, a, is a sport for all the army. But we do focus on a lot of those softer skills because they are so important. You can be a brilliant soldier, but if you can't cohere a team or varied stakeholders, it's just not going to work. So you've got to have those softer skills as well as the more conventional military skills. And that's, that's sort of the premise of how we operate. I'll just pick up on, on your, your comments there on interoperability. And I think much like empowerment, which you brought out earlier, they're, they're terms that are thrown around the army pretty frequently and are certainly in vogue, uh, but are quite quite difficult to put into into practice at times and i know across the brigade interoperability is is absolutely critical whether it's with allies partners um, or, or across wider defense how has trying to develop and establish interoperability shaped the way the regard the brigades developed um, and there are any particular lessons that you would want to highlight well i think if we just start with our own forces first and i think we certainly within the range of talents it's not interoperability it's interchangeability because we will train and benchmark our readiness against our warfighting capability. And we do that, and uh, we're blessed to have a four-way operational readiness mechanism where teams will train for six months, go into operational phases for six months, and then finish off with other tasks activity. So we can optimize training uh, as we go through the year for teams against the mission set they're going to conduct. So all the range of battalions, although they have their own individual regional focuses, I can lift a task group or a team from one and put it into another because there's an interchangeability, a common set of standards and ability, a common culture amongst all the battalions. And that's really important to me because we do recruit from across the entirety of the regular and reserve cohort. So you bring them up into one organization where there's a, a common understanding. One can look left and right, see the same cat badge, see the gray berry, and know exactly the standards that that person has and the culture that that person will follow. We do a lot of work uh, with all our partner forces, but understand that we have a very close relationship with the US, our US partners. And we've done lots of work, and you need only read about project convergence in the media recently to understand how we are operating alongside our US counterparts to understand exactly how we will work come the day at the races, collectively to achieve a. Uh, a collective outcome, if that makes sense. So interchangeability is really important. I think we probably go further than that because the way we will work in potentially a NATO community is one where actually it may be task groups operating very closely alongside another task group from another nation and potentially under command of a, of a task force headquarters or, or one-star command node that comes from another headquarters or another country. So the ability to be interchangeable amongst ourselves and then be entirely interoperable with our allies is absolutely paramount for us. To, to bring out a, a couple of the key bits there, it's that interoperability isn't just about the kit, it's about the time spent together and the, and the trust that, that is developed, uh, the credibility, and, and a lot of that takes, takes patience. It takes in the investment of time in order to, to do those hard yards and, and reap the benefit uh, later. I'll zoom out for a second, uh, if I may, and. Um, and just give a, a quick anecdote. And I remember early in your tenure, uh, you and I were sat on a plane together and you outlined the conflict where you had a long-standing family commitment uh, and a pressing divisional requirement uh, and you were at the fork in the road to make a decision of, of, of what to do. You stuck with a family commitment and I can't remember your exact words, but it was something along the lines of, I, I can't preach balance and perspective whilst not setting an example myself. Leading by example seems to have been a theme and a central pillar to your command philosophy. Has it got easier with seniority? And if so, why? 
I think, I don't know if it's got easier, it's got clearer. I think my mind is clearer now on than it's ever been about what is expected. And goodness, I am by no means perfect. Like any human being, I've got many things I'm not good at. But I'm, I'm relatively, I think, balanced in understanding where my strengths and my weaknesses are. Uh, and I do believe in a way of doing business that allows your professional life and career to flourish, but also your personal life not to suffer at the same time. Because I'm, you know, family means everything to me, both personally and professionally. I've got three young children myself and a wife who has given up a professional career and is now just restarting a career with our children now slightly older. So she's sacrificed everything for me and the family. I was born into a, fam into a regimental family that that exactly was that. It was a family where people knew each other extremely well. And I was, you know, my whole sort of field army existence has been about a sort of a collective identity. And I think if we do our job really well and are really honest to ourselves, none of us are, are irreplaceable. So my point, I suppose, to you on that plane journey, wherever we're going, Tom, can't even remember where we're going. I suppose, my, was it? I suppose my point to you would be um, that if I'm not there for a day, I've got a brilliantly competent deputy commander. I've got chiefs of staff and deputy chiefs of staff. I've got rangers. There are many people in my organization who are incredibly bright and competent who could step in for me for the day and, um, and do what was needed. So I think it would be incredibly arrogant to say it could only be me to do a job. I've got a a boss, a GOC, who understands that professional and personal lives have to work in tandem. So I had confidence in saying to him that I wouldn't be there that day and it would be someone else represented to me. And I think, as you said, I think that you know, that doesn't mean we care less about our military. I'm passionate about my organization. I love being in command of this brigade and working alongside the quality of the people I'm privileged to work alongside. But at the same time, I've got a family and I don't think the two... I don't think your passion for both should be exclusive. And I think it's, it's important that commanders and leaders do act as they speak. So if we set the tone in our own behaviours, whether it be discipline, fitness, manner, tone, culture, posture, but I think then also in showing to people younger and perhaps are looking for, looking for examples to follow that just because you have a really important family occasion, and I think the one you referred to was something to do with one of my children, and that you're desperate to go and support your child or your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it doesn't mean you don't care about your own organization. It doesn't mean you're not passionate about the regiment or battalion. Um, it's just life. And I think the army is in a different place now to where it was perhaps 20 or 30 years ago. In terms of understanding that people have you know, that collective challenge and the you know, my own view is the more you, you try and make someone's personal life work, uh, probably the better their professional output would be as well. I think that there is a correlation there between happiness, between contentment, between balance at home and the importance of that moral component I referred to earlier. And then your ability to do your job to the best of your ability. And, and that's, what I'm, I'm, that's what I want in the brigade. I think that's what we have got. And I know that's what the range of battalions have as well in terms of trusting their people, knowing that they'll do their work in the time and space, um, but then also then affording the, the freedom to make, make life decisions about where they are on important birthdays or whatever it may be. Uh, absolutely, and I, I, that's certainly the experience that I've had in the, in the brigade so far. Uh, Brigadier, uh, we're getting short on time, so I'll switch to a couple of quick-fire questions. Uh, the first one, who's the best leader that you've ever worked with and why? Oh, goodness, Tom. Um, well, there have been lots of amazing leaders. I know, off the top of my head, I'm going to select someone who perhaps uh, it was a sergeant, a sergeant in my company um, when I was a company commander, who I don't realize, don't think he realized how good he was. But if I think back to that importance of setting the example of doing the basics well, of his development of a team, he was truly brilliant. Um, and quite often when I'm going through a conundrum, I will refer back to him and think in my own mind, what would he have done? And then I start from there and work forwards. There'll be a whole load of people trying to work out exactly who that is <laughs> while they're listening. Um, and to build on that, so the second quick fire question, who's the most insp inspirational leader from history and why? You're saving the hard questions to last, aren't you, Tom? Um, 
Uh, let's go for Martin Luther King, because you just asked me who the most inspirational leader was. And I think any man who says, I have a dream and not I have a six-point plan is on the right start point for being inspirational. So I'm going to go for Martin Luther King. Excellent. Uh, and what's the most valuable leadership lesson that you've learned personally? I'll go back to that one word again of trust. And you've got to manufacture it and build it in a variety of different ways. But seeking it, and then once you've got it, protecting it with your life, I think is, is um, so important within a team. And the final one, with hindsight, if you were chatting to young Officer Cadet Hedewick with his ironing board tucked under his arm on the steps of Sandhurst on day one, uh, what, would you, what insight would you give him about leadership? I'd firstly say to him, make sure you actually polish your shoes on the first day, because I think I was on show parade every single day at Sandhurst. Uh, I would tell Officer Cadet Hedewick, enjoy it. Enjoy it. And eventually find yourself in a range of talent because it's, I think genuinely, if I look now, I love my time in the Scots. Uh, and I'm, you know, that will always be a part of who I am. But I look at where I think the future of conflict's going and what the next conflict, not the, not the current one we're seeing in Ukraine, you know, what the next one, which will be subtly different, inevitably. I think the Rangers have got a hugely exciting role to play. Brilliant, thank you very much. That was a fascinating insight from Brigadier Rob, with plenty for commanders at all levels to reflect on and get their teeth into. I was particularly struck by his clear emphasis on investing in both the individual and the team, and I think there's clear synergy with the Army leadership model there. His three pillars of trust, genuine empowerment and enabling initiative were consistent themes and provide an excellent blueprint for current and future leaders. I also found his reinforcement of the role of humility striking, and working in his headquarters, I can certainly vouch for the central importance that he places on it day to day. Something we didn't necessarily address directly, but I thought was clear throughout, was how critical he felt authenticity is for generating and sustaining successful leaders. As always, if you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe on social media via Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn, or visit the Centre for Army Leadership's website. Thank you very much.